0: Father God, uh, it, is, it is no exaggeration to say, as we're going to see today in the text, that the greatest need of our hearts, the greatest need that our souls have, is to encounter the glory of Jesus Christ in your word. There, there, is, there is no greater need in the universe for the human condition than for us to come face to face with the one for whom we were made, that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. So I pray that you would come here today, that you would open my heart so that I would speak truthfully and faithfully in accordance with your word, and that we would be carried into a deeper understanding and a deeper joy in what it means to be someone who has trusted in and received Christ Jesus. I ask that in the name of Jesus Christ be with us today. Amen. So you may or may not recall this. It was (laughs) like half a year ago, practically now, uh, when we first began our study in the book of John. And uh, we did not begin, if you remember the first message we had, we did not begin in chapter 1, verse 1. We began, actually, in chapter twenty verse 30 and uh, 31. Um, those two verses at the very end of John's book, John's gospel, tell us why John wrote this gospel. Why did he write all of these things down about Jesus? And gives us a really clear and, and straightforward answer in, in, in the question of what was his goal, like what was his purpose. Why did he write this book? So John's going to tell us. Let me read this again, just to remind us as we look at the text we're going to look at today. John 20, verse 30 says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the purpose of this book. The reason why John wrote all of this stuff down, all of the things that he sees Jesus say and do, not all of them, but as many as he can put on these pages, is that we would read them 2,000 years later (laughs) and believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God. And, And when we believe this, John says we have life in his name, in the name of Jesus. And John, of course, is talking about eternal life. He's talking about uh, the, 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 the being with Christ for all of eternity and enjoying him. That's what John is after here. He wants you and I to have eternal life. And so this is a big deal. What John says as the focus of his book here is huge. It cannot get bigger than this. This is the difference between perishing forever or living forever in the presence of God. That's the distinction here between. And John desires for us to have eternal life. That's what's at stake in this book. This is not a secondary goal. This is not a nice to have. This is not a sidebar that he hopes we see, but doesn't really matter. This is the main deal. And so when we get to chapter two, verse 11, which we did a a few weeks back, immediately after that wedding ceremony, In Cana at Galilee, where Jesus miraculously turns the water into wine to display who he is, John records these staggering words. He says, this, meaning what just happened at that wedding, was the first of his signs. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And then John says, and his disciples believed in him. Jesus manifested his glory. He displayed his glory in that event. And the result of that manifestation of glory was that his disciples believed. Faith was the result. They believed in him. And the cause of their believing, their, the source and wellspring of their faith was witnessing the signs in which Jesus displayed and manifested his glory. When that glory was encountered, the disciples saw it and they responded with faith. They believed in him for all that he was. And so there's this connection between seeing glory, being manifested, and believing in him. There's a link between these two experiences that we know, and both of them lead to having life in his name, eternal life. So this is not a secondary issue. This is huge. This is a big deal. And, and from this very verse, John 2, 11, we, we get the name of the series that we've been in. Really, I think it's been like 11 sermons. It wasn't supposed to be that way, but it just turned out to be that way. He manifested his glories, the name of the series that we've been in forever. Uh, and today, God willing, will be the last message in this series. But I feel like this is important because I want to take just today, this Sunday, and really just ask the question, what does it mean? That's an abstract statement. He manifested his glory. What does that mean? What does it mean for Christ Jesus to display his glory to us? And how does that work? How do we come to believe in him and trust him in that? I mean, especially us. Think about us. We are 2,000 years removed from this event. We're not with Jesus. We're not walking around with him. The vast majority of people who have life in his name will never lay eyes on Jesus in this life. How do they see his glory? And how are people changed I mean, think about this. This is a fundamental question. How do people become Christians? How are people changed from one day thinking Jesus is boring, we don't need him, don't want to believe in him, to the next saying, this is the most true thing I've ever heard in my life. This is real. This is true. Even though I don't see him, I know that I love him. And the answer to that question is found in the word glory. What does glory mean? What is glory? Like what, 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 When we say Christ manifested his glory, what are we saying? Well, we can find an answer to that throughout the Bible. It's all over the place in the Bible. But in our context here, several months ago, John told us in John 1.14 what the glory was in his book. When he uses the word glory, and he's referring to Jesus, what is John talking about? Well, verse 14 of chapter 1 says, And the Word, that's Christ Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is John's definition of glory. This is how he sees glory. When we look in his gospel at the word glory as it's applied to Jesus, this is it. And this is really the application throughout the entire Bible. And we could do four or five sermons, just looking at those different ways that it's described. The glory of Christ is the glory of the Son, the only Son, Christ in His Father, God. John is saying that the Word, who was Christ from all eternity, He was the Son from all eternity, became flesh, dwelt among us, tabernacled in our presence. And (laughs) when we see His glory, when we understand what He did and said, That glory is as of the only Son from the Father. And what that means is that when we see Jesus in this book, in the things he said, in the actions he did, when we see him, we are seeing God. We're seeing God. Because the glory of the Father is emanating and radiating from the person and work of Christ Jesus All that God is in his own being, and John uses full of grace and truth to try to encompass the reality of who God is. Think about it, his goodness, his kindness, his righteousness, his justice, his truthfulness, his mercy, his love, his compassion, all of those things are being put on display in Christ when his son enters the world. You and I can't see God. We can't see God because he is an invisible spirit. He can display his reality to people in his glory, but we can't see him. If we were to see him, the Bible's really clear. It would obliterate us, it would undo us completely. We cannot see God. But when the the, the, uh, the, the Son of God took on flesh. We, for the first time, can actually see what God looks like. And oftentimes, glory is, in the scriptures, d- depicted as radiance and light. It's depicted, depicted as a, a, a light that is emanating from a substance, which isn't false. Even John uses the word light, uses light language, when he describes from the very beginning glory coming from the sun coming from the Father. And this is used throughout this gospel to describe glory. But let me use light as an example to explain glory in the natural world, so you have an understanding of how this applies in a natural context. So the sun, S-U-N, not S-O-N, S-U-N. Think about the sun for a second. The sun is the star at the center of our solar system. Our planet orbits the sun and rotates as it orbits the sun, all of our chronology is based on that reality. Seasons, days, weeks, months, all of them are. The sun orbits, or the moon, or, or the, the earth orbits the, the, the sun. Now, you and I can't look directly at the sun. We can't see the sun. We can see the light from the sun, but we can't look directly at the sun and what we see when we look at the sun, like when we gl- glance at it or get a glimpse at it, if we were to see it, it would burn our eyes, similar to if we were to see God. Uh, if we glance at it, we are not seeing the essence of the sun, which is a, a burning ball of like almost perfect sphere of plasma that's 864,000 miles in diameter. Like We're not seeing that. We are seeing light. Light is Forcing itself off the sun, the light that we see from the sun that shows us everything in this world is the sun's glory. That that's that's just like Christ is the radiance of the glory of God, which is exactly what Hebrews 1 3 tells us is true about Jesus. And so what John is saying in 114 is that Jesus is the like light to the Father as light is to the sun. He is the glory of the Father shining through his person and his purposes. And John is saying that when you and I sit down and we read stories about Jesus or prophecies pointing to him or realities of what he's going to do, when we do that, you and I are encountering in words, sentences, prepositions, nouns, verbs, we are encountering the reality of Christ Jesus, which is the glory of God. Jesus is showing us who God is. And it says that when Jesus manifested his glory at that wedding, that his disciples believed in him. They saw his glory, and their response was faith. Now, how does that work? This is the title of our series, He Manifested His Glory, everything that we've read so far in the book of John, and everything that we're going to read, whether it's in John or not, in the future. How does that work? How does the glory of Christ, seen and encountered in his word, cause us to produce faith? Well, John does not leave us in the dark on this. No pun intended. He doesn't leave us in the dark. This question is answered in John 1.11. He provides us with an answer. What does it mean for a person to believe in Jesus? Like, what is that experience like? And and he's going to tell us how it relates to glory later on. John 1.11. He came to his own, it says. This is Jesus. His own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, you might remember this passage from way back when. I think it was January or February that we looked at it. It's a big deal. This passage is a big deal, and we spent a good amount of time on it. John says to believe in Christ is to receive him. See how he uses those two words synonymously? Believe and receive. When we receive Christ, when we believe in him, we are given the right to become children of God. We're we're given the right to be in God's family. And so this receiving of Christ, when we see his glory is a crucial aspect of what it means to be in God's family, to be a Christian. Outside of this, we are not in God's family. This experience needs to happen. Romans 5.10 tells us if we're not in God's family, we are enemies of God. And therefore, the distinction between us not believing and receiving in him and us believing and receiving him could not be wider, enemy or family member. And so, this is critical. To receive Jesus or to believe Jesus is to receive him, it's to receive the glory he manifests in the pages of Scripture. Now, That's how we understand faith, but that's a very broad, abstract definition. We're going to get to a clearer one later. There's a problem with this, though. And if you read through the book of John, you know it. If you read through the Bible, the New Testament, really, at any point in time, you've recognized this problem. There are many people who believe in Christ in some way, and yet they do not receive him in the way that John's talking about here. Listen to this, John 2, 23 through 25. This is the passage immediately after last week's uh, text, which was the temple scene in Passover. Listen to this. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, this is Jesus still at the Passover feast, John says in verse 23, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. We're tempted to say, praise God that's awesome. But let's let John continue his thoughts. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So this happens, like I said, after last week's scene in the temple where Jesus cleanses the temple. And there's so many things going on in that scene, so many things that his own disciples remembered and believed and trusted. But here it says, even after being there for a period of time during the Passover feast and people seeing signs during the Passover, all these signs Jesus did, many people walk away and they're believing in Jesus. They're believing in jesus they see the signs and they believe in him but here's the clincher it says here that jesus did not entrust himself to them he did not give himself to them and therefore they did not receive jesus himself and the reason he doesn't entrust himself to them is because it says here that he knows what's inside their hearts he knows what's inside them He knew that their believing wasn't a sincere, genuine, authentic faith. It was something else. Something else was going on there. And and we, like I said, see this throughout the New Testament. James talks about this a lot. We see this uh, uh, in many ways where people believe something. They say something. They confess something. And yet they still reject him for who he is. They may see him as a, a provider of a need that they really want. They may see him as a protector of something that they really prize. But they see him as a means to an end that they desire. Something that they want, actually, more than even him. And they claim to believe in Jesus. They believe in him, but not in a saving way. I mean, back then, believing in him because he was the Messiah and he could destroy Rome was a big deal. That's brought up in John 6. They want a king. And even in our modern day, think about this. Many people believe in Jesus, not because they love him, but because they want freedom from the guilt of sin, or they want freedom from hell. And it's not a bad thing to want freedom from those things. But what's the object of their desire? What are they really receiving? The driving passion in the hearts of these people that John's describing isn't a receiving of Jesus, but it is a a using of him for some other purpose, some other end, and John is saying here, Jesus is not fooled. He's not playing games. Jesus, the reality of who he is, the glory that we see in the scriptures, isn't a concept or idea that we just intellectually agree to in order to get something else that we really want. John tells us the kind of believing that we must have is a kind of receiving. True faith is a kind of Receiving of Jesus, not as a ticket to get something else that we want, something else that we really value high above Him, but as the object of our receiving. And this is the distinction between false faith and true saving faith. There is a kind of faith described in the Bible that is not saving. James, like I said, talks about it, Paul talks about it, Jesus talks about it. It's a kind of believing that isn't authentic. And it's all over the New Testament. So what is it that makes faith saving? What is it that unites us with Christ? Well, the best passage I believe, and there are many passages we could go to, but the best passage I believe to illustrate this reality is 2 Corinthians 4. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, please take them. This is the text we're going to be going through for the rest of our time. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. I hope that you have your Bibles. I want you to see this. It's important that you see this because this is could not be more critical to understanding not only how we become Christians, but how we are to read the Bible, why the Bible is so significant, why the story of the gospel and all the realities around it are so precious. So in this context, Paul here is defending his efforts and energy as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's doing exactly what John is doing in his book. He is He is proclaiming the glory of Christ, the worth of Christ by communicating all the things he does in his letter and inviting people to receive Jesus, to receive him. He's inviting them to believe in Christ, to see his glory and respond by trusting in him, receiving him for who he is. So what does that look like? How does that happen? Paul's going to tell us. So verse one, Paul says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we, in other words, everyone who preaches alongside him, do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So let's stop here. This is Paul's ministry. This is Paul's life. This is everything to him. He preaches the truth about Jesus. He doesn't play games. He doesn't tweak it. He doesn't tamper with it. He doesn't change it to make it more palatable. He tells it truthfully. He declares it. And in doing that, he's commending himself. He's handing himself over to them in the sight of God that they determine the validity of his message. And what he's going to describe next, the response here. This is the first response. He's going to go through two different kinds of responses that people should have to this, or will have to this reality, not should, will have to this reality. This is the first response. Verse three. And even if our gospel, the message he's declaring, is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of, Of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So let's think about this for a second. Paul says that one of the responses that he will get to proclaiming the gospel, the glory of Christ, is blindness. The gospel is veiled. In other words, people can't see it. They're they're hearing him talk, they're seeing what he's saying, they understand all that he's talking about to a certain degree and they just can't see it. So the glory of Christ is, is in the gospel that Paul is proclaiming. It's the truth about what Jesus accomplished on the cross. It's the truth about what he, he, he did when, in the resurrection. All of that is veiled to these people. They can't see. And Paul calls them unbelievers here, and he says that they are perishing. They are dying. That's the language that he uses in verse 3 and verse 4. They are blinded by the God of this world. That's Satan, the enemy. And they can't see. He is keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This is very similar to what John told us in John 1.14. The glory of Christ is the glory of God. He is the image of God. The glory radiates from God through Jesus into our lives. And it is the light of God's intrinsic beauty, his intrinsic worth and majesty. Paul is proclaiming that through Jesus. But when the glory of Christ is manifested to them, it collides with people who are blind to it. They just can't see it. Think about this. Paul's preaching. Same message to everyone in the room. And some people do not see glory. They are blind to it. It does not move them at all to trust Jesus. It doesn't move them at all to receive him. And Paul's telling us in this passage, this is why there are unbelievers in the world. It isn't because unbelief is logical or rational or just makes sense or it's practical. It's because despite the fact that there is real glory that is coming out of his mouth about Jesus, they are blind to it. They can't see it. They can't respond emotionally or spiritually to it. As Jesus, Jesus says this to his own people. You you, you remember this. Um, He says, seeing you do not see and hearing you do not hear. They are blind to this glory. And this is huge because to be blind is to be perishing. And if Paul were to stop here in this passage, we would just all go home. There's no hope because all of us are born this way. None of us are born believing Jesus, loving God, trusting him, receiving Christ Jesus. We are all born ignorant and blind. And if he stopped here, there would be no hope for anyone in the world. But he doesn't, praise God. How do people come to receive Christ Jesus? Paul's going to tell us how. This is the second response that people will have. And he's going to use his own experience. Listen to the words he uses in this next passage. For what we proclaim, Paul says, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has, listen to this, shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is so critical for us to see and understand. Paul is saying, as your servants, we've made it our life's goal, our life's aim, our entire life's purpose to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. He's saying, Jesus is everything to us. We have nothing more than that. Jesus is everything. He's the reason for everything we do. And the, and the reason why this is true for us, Paul says, is because God, the same God Who ages ago, when there was only darkness, spoke into the darkness and said, let there be light, and the universe came into existence. That God has looked into the darkness of our own hearts, the blindness of our own hearts, and he has shown the glory of his light. He shouted into the depths of our souls, let there be light, and there was light. And that light penetrated our hearts and transformed us fundamentally. We were given, as Paul says here, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And it comes to us through the face of Jesus Christ. It comes to us through the person and work of Christ Jesus. It's his glory that we're seeing coming from the Father, just like John said. So when Paul proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul is doing what John is doing when he writes his gospel. He is manifesting The glory of Christ. He's communicating to us who Jesus really is, and in doing that, Paul says here that God somehow uses those words to shine light into what was only darkness before, and the unbeliever's heart is filled with light, and they receive the glory of Christ. This is how a Christian comes into being. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This experience is what happens. You may not even know that this is what happened to you when you first trusted him, but this is what happened. This is how an unbeliever comes to believe. This is how a person who is perishing in this world comes to have life in his name. It comes from seeing glory. It comes from having this darkness removed, not simply just agreeing with facts, not simply just making an intellectual assent to a statement or a proposition. To see the glory of Christ means we must be profoundly, deeply, fundamentally changed. A Christian is a miracle from God. It's a miracle. It is a miracle. And the point that Paul is about to make as we finish this passage in verse 7 is that Jesus isn't just the way in which we see this. He is, but he isn't just the means. Jesus is also the end. He is both the means of this reality, he's the way we see the glory of God, and he is the object that we receive when we believe. Listen to verse seven. Listen to what Paul says after saying all of that about his experience in conversion. Listen to how he describes Jesus in his life now but we have this treasure in jars of clay, in physical, frail bodies to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. I didn't do this, Paul says. I don't give myself the treasure. The treasure was given to me by God. He says the light of the glory of Christ is a treasure in it penetrates his heart. It's so powerful, comes into his heart. When it breaks in and infiltrates the hardness, the darkness of a person's heart, it changes everything for that person. They're never the same. And John told us, like, the reason he wrote his book, these things I have written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and have life in his name. John is talking about this treasure. He wants us to have this treasure. He desires for us to experience in this jar of clay the treasure of the glory of Christ. When Jesus spoke like he, he's, he's going we're going to see as we go through the gospel of John, God willing, we will see this every Sunday. When he spoke like he spoke and did the things he did, he was showing the glory of his father. Everything he said, everything he did, he was displaying the infinite beauty, the infinite worth of God through every word, every action. And It is God alone who, through seeing that, knowing it, understanding it, searching it out, seeking it in the Scriptures, God alone can obliterate the veil of blindness that shrouds minds, that shrouds hearts to keep people from seeing the glory. And he does that obliteration of that darkness through the cross of Jesus Christ, through the gospel. The, the cross is the central reality in the gospel, and the gospel is this, the main message that comes to us through the person and work of Christ Jesus. Everything in this book is pointing to the gospel, and the gospel is that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, and that everyone who believes in him, everyone who receives him, will be saved. That's the message that Paul proclaims in everything he says, but amazingly, that message is also the power by which it becomes real for everyone who believes. When Jesus died on the cross, he laid hold of everything needed for that darkness to go away, for the blindness to be cast off. He purchased everything needed for us to see this glory. He secured the very grace that God would exert. In shouting out into our darkened hearts, let there be light. And then all of a sudden, we see what we couldn't see for years. All of a sudden, we believe what we couldn't believe for years. It just seems right. In fact, it seems more right than anything else in the world. And in that moment, we've received, we may not know it. In fact, most of us will spend a lifetime understanding what this means we have received the greatest treasure in the universe. The greatest treasure in the universe. And that treasure's name is Jesus. The cross is what laid hold of this gift. The blood of Jesus Christ took it for us so that everyone who sees the glory of Christ and receives him, not just as a way of getting something they really want, not as getting something we desire more than Jesus, but we've seen in his glory a beauty that is unsurpassed. Unsurpassed in this world. We've seen a value that is unparalleled in worth. We've seen a power and a love that is irresistible and we can't fight it because we just are taken by it. And we found in Christ Jesus the greatest joy that is possible for a human being. That's what a Christian is. It may not feel like that every day, but that is what we are, and this is what John is talking about when he says Christ manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. It is an infiltration of divine glory into the heart of a human being that was blind before, that now sees what was meaningless and boring as infinitely precious, as a treasure, greatest treasure in the world. And so the question we have really when we get to a text that shows unbelief in people like we saw in John 2 is is this, is this Jesus to us? Do we see him like this? Like when we open up our Bibles, and I hope that you open it every day, I really do, every day and soak this up. Do we open it to seek treasure? Do we open it to, to, to soak in glory Or do we read it just because we have to? I mean, it's on the reading list. We have to go through it, or it's just part of our routine, or maybe we don't read it at all. Our greatest need every single day is to see glory. There is no other need. Food cannot compare to this. Oxygen cannot even compare. There is nothing more important eternally than asking God always to open our eyes, open the eyes of our hearts to see glory in his word and to receive it, not just as something to make us feel better, but as a kind of joy that shows us Christ is our treasure. Before we pray, I want to just read two different parts of one psalm, Psalm 27, to show you that David knew this. Before there was Jesus, a thousand years before Christ, the word, entered the world, David knew this reality. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord. One thing. And that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? Why do you want to do that? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. To gaze upon his beauty. And then he says in verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, Lord, your face do I seek. Let's pray. Father God, that is the prayer of my heart coming to the end of this series, coming to this pivotal point in the book of John as we prepare for a summer in a different series and and, and then pivot later on this summer and go back deep into John 3. My prayer is that we would see your face. That we would see the light of the glory of the gospel of God in the face of Christ Jesus every single day. Not just on Sundays when we gather to read your word. But in every psalm we read, in every minor prophet, in every part of the the books of the law, in every every letter that Paul sends to a church, we would see something of Christ in what is being articulated and explained. I pray that you would use those realities. Open our eyes. Hide not your face from us. Use the, the glory of your worth and beauty seen through Jesus Christ, especially in his work on the cross to accomplish what we can. not Help us to see it, to taste it, and to enjoy Christ as our all-satisfying treasure because he is. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, Father God. Amen.